0: You are now entering the Bolt Zone. Welcome back to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive Magic podcast for the average spike, co-hosted by me, Cody Debose, and the former PT champion and Magic World champion Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. Today we're going to be doing a deep dive into one of the most broken things you can be doing in competitive magic, and that's reading your opponent's mind. And we'll talk all about that shortly. But before we do, Nathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good.
1: I've been diving into the new limited set, Murders at Karloff Manor. And I got to say, I really love getting to explore a kind of throwback to Conserve here, which we drafted a month ago for Arena and other events, just getting used to the disguise mechanic and a change from morphs where you have to pay two with ward to target a creature has been fun. But otherwise I'm really excited for the pro tour upcoming and honestly, feeling a bit of FOMO going to be missing the RC this weekend, but rest assured I will certainly be there for the next one. So looking forward to seeing what everyone's cooking up for the modern tournament this weekend.
0: Yes, I'm definitely looking forward to Denver and uh, I'll hold it down for the on boys, but um Yeah, I I have a cool deck that I've been working on a lot, and I feel really confident with it, really excited to play it and have some fun, so it should be a good time. But today's episode is going to be all about, uh, in competitive formats and competitive settings, how you can sort of gain an edge, not necessarily by the cards in your deck, but by reading your opponent, trying to figure out what they want to do, trying to figure out what cards they have in hand. Nathan, I know this is a skill that you've really honed and uh, really excel at, so I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this and, and kind of dive in to it. But before we do, I want to give some shout outs to those who have taken the time to listen and support the show. We appreciate all the feedback and support. Again, just like in Atlanta, feel free to come up and say hello in Denver. I uh, love meeting you guys and, and talking to you and hearing you know your thoughts on the show, what you want to hear in the future, everything like that. So looking forward to hopefully meeting some more fans this weekend. Uh, in the meantime, a big shout out to Pro Winston for becoming the latest Patreon to join the Bold Zone. If you would like to do so as well, you can use the link in the show notes to support the show directly. You can also check out our new merch over at BoltTheBirdMTG.com shop. We'd love to see you wearing our merch in the wild. So be sure to tag us on Twitter using the hashtag BoltZoneChat with your favorite hat, hoodie, or t-shirt. And if you do bump into me in Denver, be sure to come up and say hello. I'll have some coupon codes uh, for merch in the shop if you want to take advantage of those. So... We talked about what's going on. So let's just go ahead and dive right into it, Nathan. I want to start talking with something we've we've mentioned briefly on the show before, and that's sort of like analyzing what cards are in your opponent's hand, what their plays are telling you about uh, about their hand and their, and their game plan, and sort of how you can leverage that to success.
1: Well, one big thing that always gets brought up when you're talking about hand reading and magic is like, Are we talking about physical tells? So there's different categories. Let's just start by separating hand reading and physical tells and uh, bluffing into these different categories. The first of which is like the technical information that you work with. So when you're playing a game, your opponent is hopefully going to be making an ideal play every turn. And if you're really good or you've practiced this skill enough, you can get to a point where when your opponent plays a land on turn one you can say that's a less than ideal land by process of elimination they probably don't have another land in play um one easy example for those who play any constructed format is whenever an opponent plays an otawara a besieju a takanuma any land in that cycle it's pretty apparent that their hand is land light because those are lands that you want to save to see if their flexibility and modes gives you other options so That's something I'm always paying attention to and I'm always telling people to keep track of, which is like, where are the obvious examples of information your opponent's giving you? And then moving away from the specifics of this is something your opponent is certainly telling you about their hand, there's a more ambiguous category of what has your opponent been saying? What story are they telling with how they're acting and their mannerisms? And this is where it's much trickier because you can't necessarily use your analytical brain in order to say, this makes the most sense in in a particular spot based on the numbers and how they line up. One good example I would have here is your opponent pauses, they tank for 30 seconds, and then they attack their 1-1 creature into your 2-2 limit limited. This is like a perfect example, you know, they have 2 mana up of what do you do in this spot? Well, one thing you could point to is if you're the player who has a combat trick in a 1-1, why would you tank in this spot? So... The first piece of analysis you can give there is like, I might decide to wait on attacking because I don't know if it's better for me to play a combat trick or if it's better for me to just deploy a creature. And if you block, I might kill your creature, but that might not be the best use of my turn. So one simple way of thinking about it is they they have the combat trick, but they're not sure if it's correct to cast it. The second world we might live in is they don't have a combat trick, but they think you're so unlikely to block that they're gonna make an attack. And the truth of it is really know what is going to be the case in some of these spots, but your goal as the opposing player or the attacking player in these spots is to try to do a cost benefit analysis to, to be technical about it. So I'll, <laughs> I'll dive a little bit deeper into that later, but I'll just leave it there as like you want to assess as the player on either side of this equation. What happens if things go wrong with this attack step when you're in combat and what is the upside if things go right? So, is it a game losing thing? Is this piece of material just a trivial piece of material? And you think seventy five percent of the time they're not going to call your bluff? These are the sort of calculations at a pro level that you have to start doing.
0: Yeah, I think that the the idea of like weighing the the benefits versus the risk is really important because in a lot of those situations, like. Yes, maybe, you know, swinging with your one one might seem pretty minimal, but like also in a lot of cases, if you think that they're going to respect the combat trick and and not call the bluff, being able to just kind of get that point of damage through for free is, you know, on a board where like technically it shouldn't be able to can be valuable. So that's that's interesting. What sort of signs or, or what sort of situations are you looking for when you want to make, you know, the riskier play? And, and swing with that 1-1, one, one bluffing your combat trick, what are you looking for that's going to want to make you take a line like that? Is it just like being behind on board, being down-tempoed? Like, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, one thing that it's almost critical to identify when you're playing is what is my win condition? What needs to go right for me to win? And so oftentimes you're going to have to evaluate whether... I, I do this a lot and even to a fault sometimes, which is Sometimes I'll say, okay, I have four creatures in play and attacking is, you know, something I could do and push damage. But at a certain point, the game is going to be over because I have extreme inevitability in this game. Meaning every turn that goes on that I'm not taking damage or trading one for four damage in in my favor, I'm slowly creeping ahead. So there's this first aspect of who has inevitability. Um, I always tell clients and just myself when I'm thinking to... Specifically, figure out who has inevitability and why. So you want to figure out what's the source of someone winning, and if damage is what matters, and you're the player who has to attack, you might have to say, "Okay, I need to actually hope my opponent makes a mistake in blocking here and push through some damage." Because if they correctly identify that that's the resource that matters and they block in this bad way for me, I I already can't win. So that's the the skill set that you want to focus on, which is like. What resource matters for me, what resource matters for my opponent, and how dire of a position am I in if things go right or if things stay as they are. So if things don't change, is it still going to be losing for me, in which case I should hope my opponent makes a mistake? This is what I'm evaluating, all these sort of conflating factors.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think something that kind of like goes along with that is analyzing you know, not only where your role is in the game, but like also where your opponent's at. And and something we've talked about before is the idea of like deck familiarity and, and being um, able to understand a, a broad range of decks within a format and how you can sort of gain an edge by understanding what your opponent's plan is. So something that you've mentioned in the past also is like looking for what the opponent's best play is. And if they're not making that right now, why and you know, what does it mean that they don't have it? Or conversely, you know, if they are making that play, what does that mean for the game? What does that that mean I need to do to respond? Do you want to go a little deeper on that that idea of like what you should do based on whether or not the opponent's making like the optimal play based on their deck and, and the board state?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be even more specific about this sort of exchange... This is what limited teaches you from a fundamental standpoint. Like if I were trying to learn this concept, I would say constructed is really hard to grasp it because there are only specific matchups where these things come up, but in every game of limited, you're going to have this sort of pattern arise where you have to figure out, okay, what matters in this game? Let's break it down into some easy identifications. The first thing I mentioned, always keep this in mind who has inevitability and why, if it's unclear, then Fine. Let's move on to the next thing. We don't know who has inevitability. We're both playing decks that could have inevitability at certain points in the game. Your default should be trying to create a resource disparity in one way or the other. So this could look like, okay, I'm going to try to p- whittle my opponent's life total down, create a life total disparity, and and at that point in time, then who has inevitability could be me, and they could be at a life total discrepancy. So if that is the case, where you're ahead in terms of inevitability and life total. That's when you get to take full advantage of being in the driver's seat, so to speak, and where you get a real edge. But the next thing is in terms of like, like we said, okay, cost benefit analysis. When I'm looking at this, I'm often saying to myself, if I'm more ahead, I should take less risky lines. And if I'm less ahead, I should take more risky lines. But sometimes what people fail to understand is when you're ahead, taking more risks can put you even further ahead in a game and help you capitalize on turning your 5% edge into a 15% edge. So there, there isn't a clear cut do this in this spot, do that in this other spot, but it's more so what sort of questions do you have to be asking yourself to figure out whether I should bluff, whether I should okay try to play defensively, whether I should try to play aggressively and, then identifying when your role shifts this is really a conversation about what roles we want to inhabit in a given game and so my question to you as a listener is what are you going to do to try to assess your role in a given circumstance and lastly categories of assessment are usually put in terms of who's the aggressor who's the defensive deck i i like saying who has inevitability as the game drags on and how can I regain inevitability in a game that I can't be aggressive. So that those are some different framings, but kind of point to similar concepts at
0: the end of the day. Yeah. I really like the frame that you use of inevitability because I think at the end of the day, like, yeah, you can be the aggressive of the defensive deck, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that that's, the direction you should be working in or the ideal direction whereas like working towards a place where you're winning the game is obviously a good thing to do so um that's, that's a, a nice frame to to look at it through um going back to sort of our, our combat trick example and instant speed interaction where you know the opponent you know plays a land passes the turn do you have any any like tips or insight for the listeners of how you can spot a hand that is like definitely holding interaction that needs to be played around versus maybe a hand that just is not doing what they want to do or um, a hand that's just, you know, kind of clunky or fumbling a little bit?
1: One thing I always look at is did my opponent miss a creature at some spot of a, in the curve? this is a big tell that your opponent could have a combat trick or they're more land heavy because for every time that, you know, I was playing a a draft earlier this morning and in the draft, my opponent played a two drop and then they didn't play a three drop on turn three and they passed. And my immediate thought was their hand contains more interaction and tricks than it would normally by a decent margin because half the creatures in the format allow you to play them as a three mana two, two face down. And, When that's the case, it just means that every hand that doesn't have a three drop instantly has a much smaller range of spells that looks like combat tricks, removal spells, and lands, um, and more expensive creatures. So that's one tip I always give, which is when your opponent misses a spot in the curve, they're more likely to be holding combat tricks or or interactive spells. Other examples you might want to pay attention to. There's like the simple example of why would your opponent make an attack in a spot where they are ahead on on cards for example like sometimes your opponent will make an attack where you're behind on cards and you actually think an attack is good for you a a common thing that might be here is when your opponent tries to block like they're they're essentially playing with a hand that's light on creatures and so they're trying to make combat go their way but yeah there, there really isn't hard and fast rules the best one i would give is just Pay attention to when your opponent misses spot in a curve and develop a feeling for when someone may be making weird attacks multiple turns in a row.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and in some cases, probably ties back to the idea of like, what is their best play? And if they're not playing, you know, a creature on turn three and limited, then that would probably be their best play unless they have something that like has the upside of of potentially blowing you out. So um, definitely interesting to look at. And I think that this whole concept, like you said, it's hard to sort of put concrete rules to these things just because the ways that different games play out are so different and the construction of like different formats and the way that games play out in those is also different. But these are good high level rules to keep in mind. So before we... Um, going to the next section on sort of analyzing not just your opponent's play but but your opponent themselves um, we want to let you know that the bolt zone is brought to you by heavy play we are uh, excited to be partnering with our new friends over there heavy play uh, offers a, a variety of card gaming accessories that are built to improve your game day and gameplay experience their play mats deck boxes sleeves they all have enhanced ergonomics they're really looking to sort of shake up this this space that has not been been innovated in in quite some time with uniquely designed gear for your game day experience the big selling point is the equip mag system and this really might sound like a gimmick at first glance but once you actually get to use these accessories uh you'll quickly learn that this is a really nice and premium feature basically all the deck boxes and play mats snap together you can carry it all in one hand keep stuff secure so it's not rolling around on your mat one thing i really liked um I've never really used a, a dice box up until now, just because I don't like having two separate things, you know, like my deck and my dice separately. I like to have everything all in one place with heavy plays deck boxes and dice boxes everything snaps together so it's uh, one separate thing but then you can take it apart and rearrange it on your mat so you have everything accessible so these products are really great i've enjoyed using them a lot and if you want to check out heavy play gear for yourself you can ask about it at your lgs visit their website at heavyplay.com and if you do the latter use the promo code btb10 you'll get 10 off your entire first order and help support the show in the process and coming out this weekend at the denver rc and later this month at magic con chicago you'll be able to check out the heavy play booth for yourself, get your hands on their products, check them out. But again, you don't have to wait. You can get everything uh, right now on the website, heavyplay.com, use promo code BTB10 to get 10% off your first order. All right, Nathan, let's talk about body language and sort of assessing your opponent across the table from you. This is obviously something that you can't do when you're playing online, but with um, you know high-level paper events back, this is definitely something that is worth talking about. And something that that probably doesn't get a lot of attention just because it's not dealing with like the meta and decks and cards and everything. But looking at your opponent is such a big thing when you're playing. And I feel like there's a lot of information that you can gather just by doing that.
1: One thing about body language is some people that you're playing against, like when you're playing against a pro player, for example, aren't going to give you accurate tells quite as often. And so it could be to your detriment to try to read into their moods i know several people including teammates of mine and i'm guilty on occasion of this who are groaning or like you know looking sort of distraught intentionally to make their opponents more at ease or to make them think they're more in control of the game uh body language is a big way of of signifying to your opponent or you know being a a signal of you know weakness that you are not in a place of control or sometimes you can bluff being in a position of strength by sitting up and being, you know, looking at your opponent, staring them down like you're bored in a game can be another thing that I notice a lot. Like, okay, like, hurry up and do something. <laughs> like, people do that often when they're winning and losing, though. But what one thing I would note about body language is, like, at the lower levels, when you're playing, even at, you know, RCQs and events where your opponents are maybe... um not quite as used to the competitive scene, they're often going to telegraph like their emotions and what what they're doing through their body language unintentionally or, you know, most of the time not on purpose at all, just to say like, well, in this spot they're slouched down because they think this game is already lost and another spot where I would just say like develop some sort of consistency with which you're approaching, okay, my opponent Is acting in this way what does it mean and was that a correct read like you can be a little more analytical in your ability to say like take notes and write down okay my opponent in this spot (laughs) looks like they're completely out of the game or they look like they're super confident maybe that means they're more likely to have this spell and um yeah again hard to apply in a vacuum but another case where i would say you can develop a strong instinct to this by paying a lot of close attention to what your opponent's body language looks like.
0: Yeah, definitely something to like, keep in mind. Like you said, the high, the higher level you go, the, the less relevant this is. But I think for a lot of people listening and a lot of players that are wanting to play competitively, but maybe aren't at that highest level yet, that this is definitely an area where you can gain an edge. Um, I think that another thing to keep in mind is that like everyone is, is different and everyone will approach the game and like their role in the game differently. So I think you can't necessarily always gain too much just from like looking at someone and then their reaction. But where I think you can pick up a lot is looking for like changes in the way they're acting. So, you know, if someone all game has been um, super still and like, Calm, and then all of a sudden, now they start fidgeting, and they're they're flicking their cards faster, and they're you know acting differently, or or vice versa. That might indicate you know that that something has changed in the way that they're thinking or the way they have approached the game. Whether that be like they are have figured out the line they need to take to get there, they've drawn the card they need to to disrupt you or to advance their own plan. So looking for that change is I think is important as well.
1: Yeah, I mean. Let's talk about how can you as a player manage the amount of information that you're giving your opponent or at least control what information you're giving them. Uh, I remember, I have a lot of memories of being someone like you know, five, six years ago when I was playing my first PPTQs and events in paper who was constantly fidgeting around. I was like the kind of ADHD kid who showed up to the store. I played a lot of burn and was constantly in a state of just like, basically saying what was on my mind with my facial expressions and my body language. And I think one part of what I did that helped me control this a bit better was just having more consistency around my timings on stuff. And so that meant, you know, when I draw a card every turn, I'm playing at a similar pace, regardless of if that card is good or bad. Um, It can be really tempting, for example, when you script it out in your head, what play I'm going to make to take a really short amount of time, but then your opponent knows when you don't make the obvious play, the next time you're in a similar spot, you probably don't have that. So one part of this is just to say mixing up your patterns or being extremely consistent at uh, a similar rate can be super helpful. You can do the opposite of just playing in an erratic way that your opponent might not be able to get a read on. But the more that you're consistently playing fast when you have something that's good and playing slow when you don't, the more your opponent's going to notice and pick up on that. That that's a specific pattern I've observed with numerous people. So something to pay attention to there is like, yeah, are your opponents playing really fast and they have the card that you think they have. And when are they playing really slow and and they don't have that card?
0: Yeah, totally. That's what, that's when I also see all the time. <laughs> okay. So along those same lines of like being consistent, that's, I think that's definitely something important because you want to, not everyone is going to be looking for these signs and like not everyone is is so invested that they are going to like take the time to psychoanalyze you know how you're acting during the game but in in like high stakes competitive situations this is again a way players can gain an edge so a lot of people will and being consistent i think that that one thing you can do to sort of Either keep your opponent off balance or to to hide you know what maybe you're actually thinking is to do things routinely so so say your um your deck involves the graveyard like checking your graveyard every turn or or routinely every couple turns um instead of like you draw the spell that is gonna reanimate something or you draw the merc tie that's gonna delve and that's the first time you look at your graveyard all game like that is gonna tell someone that that you've drawn something that that changes and now involves the graveyard. Same thing for like um, asking the opponent how many cards they have in hand. If, if this is the first time in, in the match that you've asked, like that's kind of suspicious sometimes and can lead them to maybe think out like what's happening versus, you know, if you're asking more routinely, it it is less conspicuous that maybe you have something in hand. So what are your thoughts on, on that and like the routine of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, Having some sort of consistency around it is important. I would honestly say that while this is like an important topic when you get to the higher levels, it wouldn't be my highest priority to eliminate these tells. Like I I think that you should pay some attention to it, especially if you know by your nature that you're someone who just can't really control their like emotional state super well and you're gonna like play your play your face like similar to the hand you're dealt and So to me, it's like, this is what you want to focus on once you've gotten to a place where your technical abilities are proficient. But still, it is important to have some understanding of your opponent's psychology and understanding human psychology well can be helpful in magic, surprise, surprise.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree that that, like, obviously this is not like you're trying to get better. This is the first thing you should learn in in practice. I do think that, that like, at least in my experience, learning to sort of do things more consistently and more routinely and, you know, be a little more even keeled playing does in in some degree, maybe help sharpen up the more technical skills and like the way you're analyzing the game, just because, you know, when you do things so consistently, you sort of put yourself into a certain mindset where you're able to like, you know, focus on the game in the same way and, um, by having that that sort of routine that you kind of slip yourself into by default sort of frees yeah. up some thinking for the rest of the game.
1: I agree. I, I think those things go hand in hand quite often. And the consistency translates to a lot of different aspects. I mean, one thing I would mention a little bit tangential to this, but still important is like having a post-game routine outside of matches can be really helpful for resetting. And uh, since we're talking about like having a strong mental in the same vein, it's like, you want to make sure that when you're losing or winning a match reset in a way that you can reproduce what i find is helpful for me is i usually run to the restroom wash my wash my face off and then i either put in some earbuds listen to a song and go talk to my teammates after that but for me just having a practice of like okay i need to shake that match off even when you you know win a match sometimes they're really high stress or high pressure matches And you need to get yourself back into your starting point. So I would put that hand in hand with being consistent applies to how you're handling yourself in match with your emotions and also how you're allowing yourself to self-regulate once you're done completing something that takes a lot of energy.
0: Yeah, 100%. And especially with like bigger events like, you know, the RC or the Pro Tour, like when you're sitting down and you're going to play 9, 10, 11 rounds in a day, like that is super draining by the end of the day like you're gonna be exhausted and so definitely like finding a way to to reset and disconnect at the end of a match and then be able to get back into it at the beginning of the next round is is huge for you know preserving high level play throughout the day so i think that just like playing routinely in a game having that that post game routine like you mentioned is definitely really important all right so that's been a lot of talk about things outside the game and ways you can gain an edge. We're going to talk next a little bit about modern with RC Denver coming up this weekend. Uh, I believe there's a Canadian RC coming up too. So talk a little bit about modern, but before we do that, we want to let you know that the podcast is also sponsored by Boogie board boogie boards, patented reusable writing surface lets you track life totals, jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never got to worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper. Just take down your opponent, press the button to clear, and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling Jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the Jot Pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. You can learn more at myboogieboard.com slash games. That's myboogieboard.com slash games. Never start a match without your Boogie Board. All right, Nathan, so we had... A couple of weekends ago, the RC in Ghent, which had uh, definitely an interesting meta spread and results. Let's talk about that first and what that sort of showed us about the format.
1: One thing that we learned from Ghent is Rhinos is back in full force. I mean, the event itself was taken down by Marco Del Pivo, someone who I've known um, since the last PT and got a chance to talk to some more. And he has kind of been on a tear. He top-aided the last Pro Tour, And then he also with
0: rhinos, right?
1: With rhinos. So, yeah, rhinos expert through and through. Um, but the other major thing that happened in Ghent was we saw the Rakdos scam deck not really perform that well there, it did quite poorly compared to how it's done in you know past events. Even you could compare it to the Brazil's RC, I believe, where um, it had four of the top eight decks in South America. And that was, you know, what ended up taking it down there. But in Ghent with it, with a pretty large field, it did not do well at all. I think it was like 49% or 48%. Maybe it was lower.
0: You it was know? 45% at almost 45? 15% of the field. Yeah. 40,
1: 45.36%. Wow. That is not a good showing, not impressive, but no, the main factors here are like the metagame is condensed to a pretty massive degree from what we've previously seen in Modern. When you normally think of Modern, you think of, okay, there's some Tier 1 decks. You maybe have your classic, like Tron, Amulet, Scam, Rhinos, Murktide, like Scales, Living End, a million different decks that you could play, and any of these decks could do well at a given Modern tournament. But what we've seen recently is, the metagame is condensed to only five decks taking up a share of like 60 plus percent of the metagame. Um, for those who are keeping up, they would know those five decks are Amulet Titan. Amulet Titan's been doing really well recently in general and been on the rise. Um, Rhinos, definitely up in stock. Top five deck in the format. Merktide Regent and Yawgmoth as well as Scam. So those are like the big five, I would say, in in modern right now. And the relevance of these decks being popular compared to the rest of the meta game and the other category shrinking is we now know that you can attack those decks with more specific sideboard cards than you previously would be able to. So this does change a lot of how people are approaching deck building and means that you can be more confident in a given tournament. You're going to play against the top decks, whereas previously you might parent a Merfo. There's no way of knowing, but
0: that's a big shift. Right. <laughs> Which I feel like still, all, you're always going to pair in a Merfolk once, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I mean, still can happen. A million different decks people c- could show up with, but the odds are significantly lower now than they were previously.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that what you mentioned about like deck building and stuff it, is very interesting, especially um, with some of these like high level modern events coming back right now at this like very interesting time in the format. I was listening to uh, the Jerry T podcast yesterday and they were talking about how like basically the format has been split into like tier one decks and tier three decks and that whole like tier two has kind of like disappeared or collapsed and i thought that was a really interesting way to frame it
1: yeah i like that framing it paints an accurate description of what the outside decks of the top five look like compared to those top five decks on power level as well like the, the power level of the top five decks has only grown with recent sets. Um, any hot predictions for this weekend? What what are you thinking going into it? Like let, Let's each make a few predictions about what we think we're going to see.
0: Yeah, so one of my predictions is that I think there's going to be more living ends than people are maybe accounting for, more than we've seen in the past couple of weeks, just because like this deck is such a natural predator to Rhinos even though the matchup's gotten a little closer lately, it still is like super favored for living end. Um, And I also think that living end has, you know, a pretty solid Yawgmoth matchup amulet. And I think that's going to like maybe encourage some people to play it.
1: I think that's a good one. Seems like the most natural predator to rhinos is living end, which is basically as lopsided of a matchup you can get in like modern right now. It's one of them it's up there. I mean, the living end deck just needs to resolve one of its cascaders to negate all the progress the rhinos deck has made, and they have just tons of tools to do so with grief and their own force negation. So, definitely expect a lot more living end. Um, one thing I would add is my prediction is Yogmoth will have a great weekend. We, you know, have seen Yogmoth perform really well previously, but I think that it will not only be quite popular this weekend, but the Yawgmoth players who warp their deck to try to beat rhinos as well and have a close matchup there compared to previously what we thought it was like kind of a landslide of rhinos favor are going to succeed. And I think that there is yeah. a lot more game to be had there from the Yawgmoth side than the common perception.
0: I think that's absolutely true. And, and leading into Denver, I did a lot of testing with Yawgmoth, talked to a lot of people about this deck and, um, and i think to me it it feels a little bit similar to when like scam and rhinos were both really popular pre fury ban where everyone always is talking about how bad of a matchup rhinos is for scam but like with the right configuration you can absolutely tighten that matchup up once you know how to play it you can make it a lot closer and i think that obviously the tools are different but in a lot of ways the same is true for the augmoth deck and i think that Players have definitely figured out how to make that matchup a lot closer than it was even a few weeks ago.
1: Yep. Yeah. And the reality of, you know, the modern field, like we've talked about with these decks, is the best decks in the format have game everywhere because of their own structural, you know, solidity, that the strategy just aren't going to fold to anything easily. Like even when I said, okay, Rhino's is pretty lopsided versus living end, living end is going to win a lot. Like that is one of the more extreme examples among the top five decks. But beyond that, you just have a lot of close matchups that are very skill intensive and hard to navigate. So that's part of why I like modern a lot more right now than I have previously, where I feel like the matchups now are about, you know, how am I going to come up with a good plan before the tournament starts that applies in a variety of different matchups and also how am I going to configure um, my plan in game to beat these cards that hopefully have tested against a lot? Because the reality of modern right now is like, if you're not playing something that's both powerful and pro- proactive, what are you doing? Like you have to have both of those check marks,
0: right? Yeah. Speaking of, uh, I want to s- get your thoughts on a deck that we've seen kind of coming back in a pretty big way with some, some nice results in the last couple of weeks. And that's creativity, which was super popular, fell off really hard with like, lord of the rings and the ring and Bowmasters and stuff but we've seen it come back in a couple of different builds now and people are are putting up results of it what are your thoughts on creativity
1: well the first big thing is that there's a lot less one rings running around modern than we've previously seen among those top five decks i mentioned none of them play four one rings none of them and a card that was previously in a discussion as a bannable card is nowhere near that anymore i mean the One Ring is played in four color Omnap decks and, you know, blue-black ring decks sometimes, but and Tron, but you don't see a lot of One Rings anymore. And so Archon of Cruelty stock has gone up in a massive way. But the real strength of the creativity deck as I see it is it just gets to play a lot of premium interaction and has inevitability in terms of its game plan is putting multiple Archon of Cruelties into play backed up by Fables and Planeswalkers and sources of card advantage like ren and six so i think that the deck is definitely in a prime position to do well this weekend i don't know the matchup spread super well for the deck so i wouldn't say i'm an expert but i have helped um a few clients working on their creativity builds and figured out some plans that seem to line up really well right now
0: yeah i uh will will spoil that that's what i'm going to be playing in denver and have alongside dogmoth played a lot of creativity preparing for this tournament and also i've played a lot of it in the past so it's a deck that like i'm really happy to come back to and i can't tell you like how happy i am that orvar is not in the format anymore (laughs) like that that card is such a nuisance and like not having to deal with that i think is is nice another deck that is popping up like since yesterday um is the domain zoo list with the new leyline of the guild pact have you seen this list nathan
1: I have. My initial feeling is I'm skeptical, super skeptical of this deck being good, but I've been wrong before. My reasoning is pretty much that if you draw it later, it's not a playable card in these decks in the slightest. And you don't have some massive edge when you start relying on in play, in my opinion, because what it does is it essentially says, okay, your lands add anything and your domain is maxed out immediately. But... That's not always worth a card like it it really isn't. The the most powerful thing I can see with it is just that you can maybe play it with, you know, your travel flames is always five damage your scion's always much cheaper. Is there some sort of interaction with the Leyline that I'm missing? I don't know.
0: So basically like uh, the the like plan A is that when you have scion out with Leyline, it gives all of your stuff vigilance hexproof lifelink first strike and trample and like all of your creatures get all of those things obviously you can cast the scion on two with leyline binding costs one you can cast your spells like with uncracked fetches just because they're all the lands now and yeah it just it just like turns on everything right away to like as strong as it can be i also am skeptical that like this deck is going to be the truth because i think it's like little too easy to disrupt but it definitely has that feeling almost of like playing against scam where they have a nut draw that's just like really hard to interact with really hard to beat and then if not it's like a lot more tame but something interesting i'm looking at, at goldfish right now and the league dump from today there are 11 zoo decks that five owed and that's the highest number of anything that's five votes. So there's definitely a lot of people like trying it out right now, and people are succeeding with it. It's just a matter of like this is the second day that the deck's been around, and how long can that be sustained?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't really understand the zoo decks yet, but maybe in due time, I'll come to realize that the Leigh line is is very strong. I just am going to remain a skeptic until I see some
0: information that proves otherwise. <laughs> I think that's that's perfectly reasonable. Okay, cool. Any any other thoughts about Modern? I think the format's in a good spot. I
1: find that the gameplay is quite fun, and matchups are hard. Your deck building decisions matter a lot. And ultimately, I would say Wizards has done a good job with printing standard cards that make a nice impact in the format.
0: Yeah, like you said earlier, we've seen like the top five decks all get better with recent set release. Like Everything's gotten pieces lately, and I think that's definitely played a role in this like solidification we've seen in the top five
1: and we get to look forward to modern horizons three changing everything
0: so there's always that (laughs) (laughs) yeah this we can enjoy this format for a few months and then it'll (laughs) undoubtedly get thrown out the window any spicy predictions for mh3
1: Ooh, um look i'll I'll throw a softball here but i'm thinking they're gonna print a broken free spell in the set that's my first well, prediction. Well, can you imagine yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Something broken that you can play without paying any mana is on the top of my checklist. Otherwise, maybe we'll see a good okay. playing. We'll,
0: uh, okay, we we, we saw Grist.
1: Grist and then Ren and Six, two two good ones that have made impact in the past two. Yeah. sets. So some easier predictions. But yeah, I, I'm i not really sure yet. A little too far out to know exactly what direction they'll go in. I'm, I haven't made any real ideas of where they're going to bring the format but i'm sure that there will be new strategies created just from that that set alone that i can say with pretty high confidence
0: <laughs> totally totally i'm uh, i'm excited for it i had a lot of a lot of fun i know there's a lot of people that like don't like modern horizons and don't like the change the format up i had a lot of fun when mh2 came out and like all the evolutions that came after that set so i'm hoping that that mh3 gives us a nice uh, a nice shake up again yeah. but yeah in the meantime this weekend's going to be really interesting to watch see what happens you know in the format we have had a lot of changes over the past couple weeks in modern and i think that's something we've really seen like ever since this whole like rcq rc structure came back is that when a format is in the spotlight at this level we've seen innovation almost every single time and i think that's not only like exciting but i think that's also healthy for the format to like have people invested in, in caring about like these formats that they're playing enough to, to be putting the time in and finding innovations that, that stick and are are really impactful.
1: Totally. Well, I am excited to see what comes of the modern tournament this weekend, but good luck, Cody. I hope that the tournament goes well and we'll be able to talk about both of us playing in the next, uh, the PT after this one.
0: Yeah, it'll definitely be exciting to, to do that catch up and, uh, yeah, should be a good time. If we don't talk again, good luck to you in Chicago. I'm excited to, to watch the journey and, and see how it goes. Uh-huh. Thanks. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Bolt Zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow. Leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We read them all. Love to hear from you guys. You can get in touch with Nathan and I on Twitter using the hashtag BoltZoneChat. And again, I'll be at Denver this weekend. Nathan will be in Chicago later this month, so be sure to come up and say hello. We'd love to to meet you guys in person. If you want to help support the show, consider subscribing to the Patreon. We'll put the link for that in the show notes. And until next time, get out there and sling some spells.